Usually I don't bring water with me, but I might cough, so that's here just in case. We'll see what happens. We seem to have a cold going through the, the office, and our offices are too close together. We, I guess we just talk too much. Or hug too much. I don't know what it is, it, John. It's, it's hugging too much. I think that's, that's where it's at. We just love each other so much. We pass on our diseases. So um, bear with me, should that be the case. Um, we're continuing our doubt series um, on um, just some big questions that people might have or that, that they come to um, in Christianity, in the church, in, in hearing about Jesus, have, having these um, big questions. And, and today we're going to tackle hypocrisy. So let's see if we can do it uh, justice. Uh, Rex Murphy, in an article he recently wrote on a climate summit, uh, wrote this. A climate summit held in Sicily this summer and sponsored by the two founders of Google, attended by a number of A-list celebrities and billionaires. The, the hypocrisy of politicians is a bead of sand, a pimple in the shadow of Everest, compared to the hollow, fake piety of the mega-rich and famous gospelers of global warming. How did this coven of Illuminati get to Sicily? Did they walk and row, come by Greyhound, hitchhike? No. Official count of the private jets wafting into Palomaro Airport for the great consult stands at 114. This for a maximum 300 people attending. Three persons per jet. Not all come from the carbon-rich sky. Some come by personal super yacht. Super yachts are vultures, gluttonous for fossil fuels. They can only be ri rivaled only by the excess of private jets flying thousands of miles to hold meetings to persuade the poor of the world to cut down on the consumption of fossil fuels. For a little sightseeing, the, the, the wealthy were given high-fuel 200 grand Maseratis. But to their credit, there were no plastic straws. <laughs> Celebrity hypocrisy is something that we can mock. Maybe rib a little bit, but when we look at the message and how it is portrayed, we can say, this, this is silly. You're not, you're not living like you are preaching. Political hypocrisy, though, hits a little bit closer to home. Um, yeah, our, our, our prime minister has been in hot water over the last couple of weeks. The self-proclaimed most progressive prime minister Canada has ever had has had his platform severely damaged through the treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould in the months past, and now these blackface photos. He preaches something, and then find out that his life looked like something different. Now, I, I want to be clear, this isn't about liberal or 
conservative or green or, or um, NDP. That's, it's not a political statement. It's just a means to show that in the world of celebrity, hypocrisy can be seen. In the world of politics, hypocrisy can be seen. But probably the, the most toxic, the most damaging place where hypocrisy takes a foothold is in the religious. As much as you might shake your head in disgust or even revel in the backlash of these celebrities and politicians that uh, maybe you do or don't support, it's the hypocrisy of the religious that is most off-putting to people. So much so that today people are asking, is, is Christi- not is Christianity true, but why are Christians such bigots? Why are they so judgmental, so merciless, so fake? So that's why today we're going to look at this question. How can Christianity be true if Christians are such hypocrites? Certainly the, the, the truth of Christianity ought to infiltrate their lives and the church should look a particular way, shouldn't it? Well, what, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who claims beliefs that his or her actions don't conform to. So, so in, in the church, somebody might look in from the outside or maybe come and sit, sit amongst us or maybe they're our neighbor and they see us go off to church every morning or we've happened to say, you know, oh, you know, I, I go to this church or I, I'm a Christian in a conversation or this is at school. And then this, this person from the outside looking in says, well, they say they're a person of faith, but which, which means they shouldn't gossip, but what, all, all, all I hear is them gossiping about the people around them. They, they, they say they're a person of faith, but, but I, I think that the Bible talks about not getting drunk. Why do I see them so inebriated? Or I know that, that, that the church would stand for chastity and, and have a special place for marriage, but, but why is it? that there is adultery and sexual promiscuity of those Christians I know. Certainly, if what they believed was true, then they would act differently, wouldn't they? Now, the the problem is is that I, I stand up here equally as guilty of that hypocrisy. is that if, 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 if my life would stand before you and you could see how it is that, that I treated my coworkers or my employees, and how I could justify the things that I said or did, and at the same time hold the title Christian, you would say, oh, yeah, 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 you're, you're just one of those. And I'm going to say, yeah, yes, I am one of those. I am a hypocrite. But you see, I, th- I think the challenge is in understanding the nature of the church. 
and understanding where we should place our emphasis and what kinds of things we should be looking towards. And so um, today I want to look at kind of three things. First, um, the, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. That is absolutely true. Second, the church contains Christian hypocrites. And third, the church isn't built upon hypocrites or morally upright people, but it's built upon Jesus. So let's walk through, the, through those together. First, the church contains unbelieving hypocrites. The, the, the nature of the church is such that our doors are open, that anybody can come in. Now, we can have anybody sit in the chair and worship with us and listen to the preacher preach and, and be a part of the programs that we, that we have and maybe even identify with a lot of the values and ethics that we, that we espouse and yet sit as an unbeliever. Jesus kind of outlines this in uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, this, this great sermon that he, that he preaches at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew as he kind of inaugurates his, his mission in the world. He gathers people around him and, and he preaches this, this, this message. And, and when he's coming close to the end in chapter 7, this is what he says in, in Matthew 7 chapter 5, or verse 15, "'Beware of the false prophets.'" who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. You see, Jesus, as he's, as he's talking to these people, as he's saying, look, you should come follow me. The, the kingdom of God, I am, I'm inaugurating the kingdom of God and you should follow me as, as, as he kind of finishes that that, ser that sermon, as he, as, he, as he concludes it, he says, but you, you need to be aware that there are going to be people among you who are going to look like sheep. That's a, that's a funny way to talk about it. Jesus talked about the, 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 him being the good shepherd and those that follow him being his sheep. And so he's just kind of using an, uh, a metaphor to talk about what it is that real followers of Jesus look like. He's saying those that are actually a part of my flock, they're, they're sheep. And there's going to be those that look like that. They're, they're going to have the wool on and they're, they're going to do the right things, but but inwardly, their motivation is one of destruction. Their motivation is one of deception. Their motivation is one of evil. And so, we have to be discerning then about what that looks like, is that there are amongst us those that do not believe, that are not sheep. So, if, if someone is standing on the outside looking in, it's no wonder that they would say, well, you look like hypocrites. I mean, that, that, that sheep looks just like that sheep, except this, this sheep here just is, like, he's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a gossip. Yeah, J Jesus warned us that there will be those among us who look like us but are 
not followers of Jesus. And yet, and yet he goes on. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, not, not only are there purposeful deceivers, those who sit amongst the church and act like it, but are looking for ways to discredit it, but there are those who look like the church, but are deceived they are deceived deceivers, that they, they are serving and stacking chairs and making coffee and, and handing out bulletins and, and, and raising their hands in, in worship, but in their heart, they haven't understood what it is that Jesus said, what Jesus called them to. And in so doing, they live lives of hypocrisy. When the rubber hits the road, when Jesus called to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me needs to be brought to bear, they waffle. And those on the outside look in and say, see, look, the church is full of hypocrites. Now, the, the reality is, though, is that we, we need to be aware that faith works itself into service and good works and holiness and righteousness. That's what the book of James says. Like the, the summary of chapter 2 is like faith if you would say, I believe, but there's nothing that you do about it, then, then we got to question this real faith thing. Faith without works is dead. And, and he actually goes even further to say, look, like, like the demons themselves would say, yeah, God is one, but they're demons. So, so your faith should work itself out. It, it should be evident to those around you that, 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 that Jesus lives in you and that you're changed by it. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's like saying to a brother or sister who needs food, oh, I'm just going to pray for you and then walk away. Do, do, do you love that brother or sister? Has your love been shown to them by simply being like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you're in this terrible circumstance. Let me, let me just, oh, Jesus, would you, would you just provide food for this, this poor soul? Well, good, okay, I'm off to my family dinner. No, no. 
Like true love for this individual would actually be like, oh, you don't, you don't have what you need to survive here. Let me take what I have and give it to you. See, we, we actually manifest the love that we would proclaim by the actions that we do. So James's argument is simply that, look, faith manifests in works. So we should be able to look at those in the church. We should be able to look at those that call themselves Christians, that put on the name of Christ and see a difference. So this, this is a warning. Jesus, Jesus is, 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 is warning those who would follow him to say, look, you can do all the right things, but if you're doing them for the wrong reasons, on that last day, I won't know you. And James is saying that you, if you, if you're if you know what the motivation is, then it ought to work into a new life and a new way of living. The warning then is that our confession must be coupled with God-honoring lives. And where there, this is not happening, it is rightly looked on as completely distasteful and hypocritical to the watching world. It is right for the, our neighbors to look into our lives and say, you don't match up to what you believe. But that's not the end. That's actually only the beginning of the conversation. Because there are unbelievers in our midst. There is a cultural Christianity that comes and infiltrates here. And, and, and we need to now start to understand, well, what then is it that the Christian life should look like? Which brings us then to the next point, which is that the church contains Christian hypocrites. We're going to look at Romans 7 here in a minute, but, but before that, Paul, is, um, Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church, and he kind of, from beginning to end, outlines like the, the gospel of Jesus, and he kind of tries to um, bring clarity to what it is that Jesus did how he did it, what that means for us. He kind of asks these questions. He does this in a really interesting way and where he kind of plays devil advocate, devil's advocate for himself is that he'll make a statement and then he'll ask a question. Then he makes a statement and then he, asks, he kind of answers it and then he asks another question and then he answers that and he asks another question. And so throughout this book, you get the idea that, hey, like we know, we know in our hearts that there are good, there are right things to do, and there are wrong things to do, and we choose to do the wrong things. I mean, this is, this is not um, a, a, a new reality, that in, in the world we would say, oh yeah, it's right to be honest, except when it will cost me to be honest. And so we, we hear that internal struggle. We know that there is this, this, we can look at the world around us and see God in the, the moral and ethical fabric of the world and the creation of the world, and yet, and yet we choose to deny Him. 
And Paul says that's, a, that, that, that's, that's the result of, of sin, but, but, but here's, here's the reality is that God didn't leave us in that, is that he came in the form of Jesus, he, he poured himself into the form of Jesus and lived this perfect life, an exemplary life that we could follow on, on our behalf, and then, and then that judgment that we should receive from God he poured out on Christ on the cross and he died a death that we ought to die so that, so that then we could have relationship with God and, and, and all of those sins that you've committed in the past and in the present and in the future, those can be forgiven in, in that moment, in that person. And then, and then he raised again so that, so that we could have eternal life, that we would have assurance of hope that this life is not all that there is, but God will one day take everything and make it new and, and glorify it all. Right? And then, and then the, the question then becomes, though, in, in Romans chapter 6, the question is, well, wait a second. If, if God paid for it all, then, then may, may, maybe I can just keep on sinning. Right? I mean, if His grace is infinite, then why do I have to change my life? I might as well just continue gossiping and continue lying and continue doing these things because Jesus' grace is just going to cover it all. Paul's like, okay, okay. You got it. That is a good question. But by no means is that the answer. Because you see, what you're forgetting is that sin leads to death. And, and what's happened is, is that Christ has paid for that sin, that, that, that sin that you ought to have paid for. He's, he's paid for and he's made you right with God. But if you continue down that path, if you continue moving in that direction, then, then death is at the end of that. It will swallow you up. That master is, is, is only bent on your destruction. So you don't truly understand what Jesus has done if what you think is, well, if Jesus has paid for it, then I can just keep living like hell and I'll get heaven. No, 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 you've missed it. Because Jesus didn't just come to pay for our sin. He came to show us what it looks like to live in life and to give us a spirit to live inside of us, to give us strength to start to emulate what it is that he set as an example for us. And so, and so then, then we get this passage in Romans chapter 7 where, where you're trying to think like, well, how does that work out? Because if Jesus came and he forgave my sins... And then he put his spirit in me to help me live this righteous life. How is it possible that I, that I still gossip? I still lie. I still objectify and lust and have greed and pride in my heart. And, and, and Paul has this really interesting thing in, in Romans chapter 7, 19 uh, through 8 verse 1. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, and when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to guess that everybody can relate to this passage. That we, that we see the teachings of Jesus, that we know that we ought not to gossip or that we ought not to lie or that we ought not to cheat or that we should remain faithful with, to our spouse so that we should, we should know Christ and be inundated in His Word and, and be pr- people of prayer and yet... We think, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. How does that work? How do we, how do we understand this? Well, I, I, I think we kind of have to use like big theological words, or we kind of do that in, in the church. So we, we use these words, justification, sanctification, glorification, to kind of sum up big ideas in the church. And so when, when we're talking about this, this reality of what Jesus did, what He came to do in His life, His death, and His resurrection, and when we believe in that, we, we call that justification, in that what that is is that Because we have casted our hope on Christ, what He has done is He's paid for our sins and now made us right with God. And He promises that one day then, we will be perfect in God's sight. And we call that glorification on the other side. In that one day, Jesus will return and He will give us new bodies and new minds, and we won't have sin and death and, and, and sorrow in the world. And, and in that, we, will, we have been promised that we will be glorified, that we will be perfect, that the sin that so easily entangles us will be gone. But we have this middle portion in where we stand before God forgiven. But we're not yet perfect. And this process we call sanctification. It's that we, we had an, a slave master who we just obeyed. And now that we have been freed from it, our hearts are so inclined to go that way and it's a process to move towards being more like Jesus. This is something that we need to understand first as in our own lives, that Jesus is working in us to make us more like Him, that it's not an instantaneous moment in where all of a sudden now one day I'm a pagan and the next day I'm a saint. No, 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 is that Jesus came and saved me when I was dead and He breathed into me life and He's going to mold me for the rest of my life into His image. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, imagine a country in which one group of people has for centuries 
enslaved another group of people. (laughs) With the state of our world, it is not too hard to envision this. So whenever a member of the enslaved group would meet a member of the oppressing group on the street, the oppressor could order the other person around, and if they didn't obey, the member of the oppressing group could have them beaten or killed. They had the right and power to do it. But then, but then, a good king came into power and decreed emancipation for all the slaves. And he put soldiers and police officers and judges in place to ensure that his decrees get put in motion. And they are free, really free. But is that really all that it takes? The reality is, is that whenever a member of the enslaved group who has been enslaved their whole lives from a group that had been enslaving them for centuries, would encounter a member of the oppressing group, they would tremble and quake. And when a member of the oppressing group would still order the members of the enslaved group around, those individuals, uh, uh, the oppressors couldn't have, uh, sorry, the oppressing group didn't have the power to do that anymore, and if the formerly enslaved individual stood up against it, the oppressors couldn't have done a thing. And yet over and over and over again, the members of the enslaved group continue to act like slaves. Because even though their status has been changed, they truly were free. They didn't always grasp it, didn't always realize it and live according to it. They spent a good deal of their time as slaves, and even, yet even though they had been set free. And you can, you can imagine this circumstance and that a slave is, is set free from his master and goes about his life and has spent the majority of his life just listening to the voice of his master and doing what he says for fear of repercussion. Then one day someone comes along and sets him free, buys him and sets him free or does, does whatever the case is. And he's, he's walking down the street doing his own thing as a free man. And across the street, he hears his master say, hey, you come over here. And immediately his response is to step off the sidewalk and walk that way. And halfway there, he goes, wait a second. You don't own me. I don't have to listen to you. And he turns around and walks back. But you see, this this is the Christian life, is that Christ came and set us free. And yet sin so easily comes in that when we hear its voice, we get halfway across the street. Don't we? We just veer off. Oh, what a mistake. But there's, a, there's some important things to, to recognize here. First, our Christian response and understanding then that we are not simply made perfect because, because well, we accepted Jesus, but that there's a process in Him making us more like Himself. Our our response when we find ourselves stepping off the sidewalk and listening to that old master's voice 
is to turn in repentance. Just like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And own, just own that we do that. We, we step off of the, the sidewalk and, we, and, and we, we hurt others. And we don't live up to the name of Christ. And we don't actually always do what He says. We need to repent and then apologize to those we've hurt. Donald Miller, who wrote a book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, um, when he started his college ministry um, at the campus that he was on in, in Western states, he, uh, it was a super liberal campus and uh, the church had basically been laughed out of there. And so um, kind of on the first couple of weeks of school when all of the sororities were doing their thing, he decided to set up a confessional booth. Um, and so him and his uh, volunteers, they sat in the booth, and, and certainly all of a sudden, you know, you get these, these new college students come through, and they thought, oh, it would be funny, so let's, let's go in there. And so they, they would get inebriated students coming in to confess their sins. Don, D- Donald Miller would stop them and say, no, 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 no. Th- this, this booth is about us confessing where the church has, has wronged you. We need to seek repentance and, and apologize for where it is that we've, we've misrepresented Christ and, and where we have undermined mercy and grace and truth and we've made it our own and we've used it to bat you over the head and diminish you. And in so doing, in that humble approach of saying, look, this is where we need to apologize, where we need to repent, the church gained footing on that campus. See, the Christian response should be of repentance and apology. Before we launched the Lake Iraq campus, we had um, one of our directors, John Johnstone, uh, come on board. He's a, a... indigenous brother in Christ, and uh, he went into the area and just started talking to the First Nations people. And you know the question he asked? He, he would go and he would sit in people's homes, and he would point to that church down the street, and he would ask, so, so what do they need to apologize for? What, what wrongs has that church perpetrated against you? Where do we need to humbly come and say, we are so sorry for not representing Christ well? We are so sorry for the damage that our sin has done. See, the, the, the Christian life isn't, isn't about living perfectly, but recognizing that our perfection is in Christ and that He is making us new. And so we need to own, we need to own our failures and say, yeah, we are hypocrites. We fail daily. And when it's brought to our attention, we will seek to, to repent and apologize for it.
Secondly, though, to those doubting Christianity on the basis of the hypocrisy of Christians. I, 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 I would encourage you to change the way you look at it. I, th- I think the question is challenging. See, instead of asking, how morally upright is a person? Maybe we should, should ask the question, where did this person start from? Instead of saying, do they reach this bar? Ask, well, where were they five years ago? What did their life look back then, look like back then? Where have they come to? Is there maturity? Are they less of a hypocrite? Do I see work in them? Are they less greedy? Do they lie less? Henry Nouwen wrote, uh, can we only speak when we are fully living what what we are saying? If all our words had to cover all our actions, we would be doomed to permanent silence. Sometimes we are called to proclaim God's love even when we are not yet fully able to live it. The the, the church knows this about ourselves. We are not perfect. We are messed up and we can look critical or hypocritical from the outside. But God is doing a work in each one of us. And if you ask the question, where were we five years ago? If you would open my life and ask me that question, I could show you where it is that Jesus has made me more like him and less of a hypocrite. But you know, this this question also gives us a little bit of a philosophical question to ask. See, when, when we level accusations of hypocrisy... We assume that there's a moral standard that hypocrites break. But why, why, why does that standard exist? Where does it come from? So in, ter- in terms of hypocrisy, ra- rather than serving as an argument against faith in God, the objection of hypocrisy actually supports the reality of a transcendent moral being who stands over the fray. If you were going to say, you don't meet this standard, who sets this standard? You're not living up to that spot. Well, who, who sets that? You're not being moral enough. You're not being ethical enough. Your, your hypocrisy is so... It's so evident. Yeah, but that, that, that's exactly it. Because if I'm making the standard, I'm going to make it realistic. Aren't I? Like, aren't I? Like, if, if it's me, I'm not saying don't ever lie. I'm saying stay away from the big ones. Right? I'm not saying don't ever be greedy. I'm saying, well, just be greedy enough so that you can have your dreams, but don't oppress the poor. 
I'm not saying die to yourself and follow Jesus. I'm saying, well, just take the rest of your life and bring it along and put Jesus on as a necklace, and that's good. Like, if I'm making the standard, that's, that's where I'm going, right? Because that's achievable. But, but we know the bar's up here. But we're all hypocrites because the bar is set by someone else. But that's just the point. That's just the point. Is that the church isn't built on hypocrites or the morally upright. It's built on Jesus. I'm not, I'm not asking you to look at me and say, well, well, is that guy the church? No. Jesus sets the standard. Jesus lived that life. He came and lived a perfectly unhypocritical life. Weighing Christianity not on its followers but on its leaders, Jesus is not a hypocrite. Praise God that our faith isn't about us but about Jesus. See, here's, here's the thing. Over the last many years, there's been, a, there's been kind of a, this explosion of like singing TV shows, these reality shows, where, where we started with, I don't know, American Idol or whatever, right? And they'd have the auditions. And the auditions always had kind of an equal part super talented people, like those that could really sing, and, and also those that just kind of destroyed it, like, just like, oh, and most of the time, those were the more popular ones, right? Like the YouTube hits on the guy who just tried to belt out Anne Franklin or whatever, right? Like, you just, you just, you, that, that was the one that would be just super popular because he was flat and he was out of, like, he's out of tune, he's off sync, like, he just doesn't, he doesn't have it together, right? And, 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 and yet, if, if someone came along and said, hey, hey, I'm going to sing an Aretha, Aretha Franklin song, right? And, and they go and they just destroy it. It would be ludicrous to say, well, you know, Aretha really isn't the queen of soul. Did you hear that? That was terrible. So I, I guess she really isn't the queen of soul. That, that would be stupid, because that's not Aretha. In the same way, if you're, if you're looking at me or, or other Christians, you're, you're falling into the same fallacy because Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He sets that standard. He lifted that standard. We're just, we're just trying to emulate Him. And I'm going to admit right here, I am a terrible emulator. But all, all, all I'm trying to do is, is point to him. Look, look at him. Look at what he did because he did live that perfect life. He, he, he did accomplish what he came to. The standard he set, he met. See, Christianity doesn't rise or fall on me. It rises and falls on Jesus. So if you sit here and you wonder... How can Christianity be true because of the 
hypocrites around. My question to you is, is Jesus a hypocrite? I, I am, I know. If you look deep enough, I know. But I am sure that Jesus is not. Josh McDowell and Don Stewart, uh, in, in their book, Answers to Tough Questions, asked this question or answer, um, said this. Christianity does not stand or fall on the way Christians have acted throughout history or are acting today. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus. And Jesus was not a hypocrite. He lived consistently with what he taught. And at the end of his life, he challenged those who had lived with him night and day for over three years to point out any hypocrisy in him. His disciples were silent because there was none. Since Christianity depends on Jesus, it is incorrect to try to invalidate the Christian faith by pointing to horrible things done in the name of Christianity. That just speaks to our failure, not his. Josh is saying three things here. First, whether or not Christianity is true does not depend on how his followers behave. This doesn't excuse hypocrisy, but neither does it mean that hypocrisy is sufficient to dismiss Christianity. Second, Christ was not a hypocrite in any sense of the word. And often, critics agree with this point, exalting the high moral standard of Christ without understanding his larger claims. And finally, this quote touches on the hypocrisy on a large scale, such, such as the Crusades, which we'll go into in a few weeks when we look at don't all the injustices of the church discredit Christianity. Again, this does not excuse hypocritical behavior, but separates it from the center of Christianity, Jesus and his claims, his words and his work. And this is the biblical story from cover to cover. Matt Smithhurst put it this way in a tweet. He said, Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter was a denier. Thomas was a doubter. Lazarus was dead. Jesus saves What's our part? Liar? Murderer? Adulterer? Denier? Doubter? Dead? He saves. Jesus brings dead people to life. It's not those who screw up who are the point, it's Jesus. And it's not those that are brought back to life that's the point. It's Jesus. Jesus heals people. And it's not those who have been healed by Jesus who are the point. It's Jesus. Jesus is the point. I, 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 want, you to in, I want to invite you 
to look to the leader of the church. Jesus himself. Look at what he did in his life, in his work, in his teachings, in his sacrifice, and in his resurrection. And say, does Christianity live or die on him? And then join the church as people just trying, just trying to look more like him on a daily basis. It's not about what we can do for God, but what, a, what God has done for us in the person and work and, and life of Jesus. I'm so glad that the church isn't built on me, but on Christ. So, so church, your righteousness is not built on you, it's built on Jesus. So when that voice comes and you step off the curb, when you recognize partway down the way, I'm going the wrong way, repent and apologize. Own it. In so doing, you bring great honor to your Savior and point people to Jesus. And for those of you who are doubting the claims of Jesus because of our hypocrisy. First, we, we will never meet the standard of Christ, but look to Him. Look to Him. See if He did. Make your decision on that, and then join us as we follow Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that um, You use broken people, to display your mercy and grace. So God, I pray first that you would, that those of us that call you Lord and Savior, God would quickly recognize where it is that we don't measure up and that we would come in repentance to you and we would seek to bring reconciliation and apologies to those we've hurt. Oh God, would, would, you, would you help us to have humble hearts? And God, I pray that you would also reveal yourself more clearly in the person of Jesus um, so that we can love you and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.